For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. I have been wanting to have our guest this week on Lit Up for many, many years because I've been reading her work as the New Yorker food critic for so long. Hannah Goldfield writes the weekly column, Tables for Two. And if anyone can make you want to get on a train for an hour to go to Queens for some incredible Singaporean noodles or traverse the city, you know, downtown to the best dumpling house, she will do it. We launch into this conversation talking about what makes a restaurant experience unique And we've both worked in restaurants. I was a server forever. She was a host, which she'll tell you about. But really this story is about how she captures through her words the story of New York City through its colorful, diverse, and vibrant food and restaurant scene. Now, speaking of New York City, please forgive the construction that you can hear. That's just part of living in a crazy city like this. Um, I hope you love this episode. Right. Somehow I'm not having the experience that I thought. Right. Um, but the alchemy of what what makes a restaurant experience special is I'm sure now you can see what makes that up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the even the making the reservation experience mm-hmm. to arriving at the door. Mm-hmm. So much can go wrong, mm-hmm. but it also seems like it's not that hard to make it go right. <laughs> yeah. I think it's harder than it seems in some senses. Um, so I was a host at a restaurant that doesn't exist anymore, but it didn't take reservations. I had a list, a handwritten list, and then I had this system of, you know, that, that the restaurant taught me where I would every night draw a map of the restaurant and then there was like a schedule that I kept in mind of how long it generally took people to have, you know, finish their drinks and their apps and then move on to mains and dessert. And I had to do this complicated calculation in, in, in the service of telling people how long I thought they would have to wait. And I got really good at it. Um, and it, you know, it's a, it's a skill that I think anyone can learn. And so now if I'm, if I go to a restaurant and I feel like the host doesn't know what they're doing, I think like, this isn't that hard. <laughs> like, you know, and they act like, oh, it's totally, I can't possibly give you an accurate quote time. And I'm like, yes, you can. <laughs> if you, if, if someone took the time to figure this out, you know, it's actually, it's a science, um, to some degree. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I think that, I think that, some things are harder than they seem. Like the cooking, I think, is a lot harder than people understand. Um, but certain aspects of service, I think, are actually like not 
as unattainable as as you might think, or as as some restaurateurs would have you believe. Well, and I think we all have those favorite restaurants mm-hmm. that the service is so wonderful that you forgive the food yes. and you just love being in that environment. Yes. yes, they remember you. They're never coming over after ninety minutes to say, right. you know, you have to go in half an hour, and you want. You know, there are all these trends too, which we'll that get to. That is a big one. That is, I've noticed that so much recently. Not only am I being told, I'm being told at, when I sit down, this is how much time you have. And it's, to me, that's like the antithesis of hospitality. It's like, who wants to think about that? You're, you're sitting down to enjoy a relaxing meal, hopefully. And someone's starting off by telling you that the clock is on and that you better get up as soon as, you know, they need the table back. I think that's a horrible, horrible trend. On the other hand, knowing better understanding now, as I do the restaurant industry, I get it. It's like the, the margins are so thin. Um, so, you know, you need to turn tables at a certain rate to literally keep the lights on. So it's like, I don't totally, you know, I don't find it completely mysterious, but I do feel like if it were me, I would figure out I would work really hard to figure out how to avoid doing that. And I think that, you know, some people have. It's not like a totally impossible puzzle. Yeah. But but I do think it's hard. I mean, all the issues you're talking about, I feel, were exacerbated through the pandemic as restaurants tried to work out, A, if they could stay afloat during that time. But we've emerged... What do you see in the restaurants that are able to open now? Mm. Is there uh, themes that you think people are feeling like this has a real chance? Are there elements of service that you think are becoming more important? Or, and is it restaurants with this crazy backing, like that bad Roman place that I haven't Mm. been to, but Mm -hmm. my fiancé went and was, he left and he was like, ripping his hair out as someone who's like an independent restaurant owner. He's like, I don't get it. And why is it that these, you know, finance-backed entities somehow, are they paying people to say that like pepperoni dipping cups for adults are cool? (laughs) You know, it was very confusing. Yeah, yeah, it is very confusing. And it's also like, I don't really understand it seems like such a losing game to invest in a restaurant as I'm sure you well, you well know. So I guess it's like just these people have disposable income, but it doesn't seem like I'm not, I guess it's disposable income and then they want to be like, you know, king of the castle. It's like, if you own a restaurant, then you get to go there and it's like your private club. I guess I'm answering my own question, but it does, it just seems like a strange thing to put your money into because you're not going to make any money back. I don't think for the most part, although maybe they think they've invented a new thing. I don't know. Um, But in terms of, of what the kinds of places that are emerging, I mean, I, one thing I've noticed is I think that restaurateurs, the, the, I, I think there's sort of two categories and maybe more, but this is what's coming to mind right away. I do think there are a lot of those huge, huge, hugely financed places. A lot of them are in hotels. Um, mm. And does the hotel subsidize I, I the rent? So. Yeah. I imagine so. I think it must. And then you have this kind of built-in infrastructure to some degree. Um and then I think there's a lot of people who have gone out on their own. Um, 
who would have, you know, 10 or 15 years ago worked in the kitchens of really, you know, big, of those other places or, or places like 11 Medicine Park or, you know, just sort of tried to be at like the top of their game um, in someone else's restaurant. And then the pandemic kind of laid bare the fact that you could eke out a living by having a pop-up and then you could turn that into a brick and mortar place post pandemic. And I've seen a lot of that happening. Um, and then kind of like a little tangent from that is that, uh, um, some of those people have kept the pop-up thing going. And so, the, and then they have these kind of like floating lifestyles where they do lots of collaborations and they do special dinners at other restaurants and just kind of just do what they want to when they want to, which seems kind of fun too. It's a lack of stability, I think, but it seems like there's a lot of, a lot of work, um, or a lot of opportunities rather. Um, but, uh, but the places that the places that the kind of little people to, you know, just as, a, just to distinguish them from these big, bigger restaurants, um, the places that they've been opening, I feel like there's this real sort of, uh, revision of the rules happening. So like, places they you know they'll only be open a few days a week for example or an example i keep thinking of that i i find fascinating is um these restaurants called dame and lords um and it's this young couple uh who have opened both of them and they had a they had a pop-up during the pandemic and they at least one of those restaurants like now i i should have done my homework but one of them is not open on at least Saturday nights and maybe not Fridays and Sundays either. And I remember, I don't know if they'll, if they'll keep that going long-term, but I, I think I'm remembering this correctly. They said that it just like, they did the math and it wasn't worth it to them. Um, it's too hard. It's like Saturday nights are miserable. I think at, at restaurants <laughs> cause it's so busy and it's so like the stakes are so high. Um, and so they decided to like make it more livable for themselves. And there's a restaurant in Paris, but it's run by, uh, young parents and they are not open at night because, and it's super popular, like one of the best restaurants in Paris. Um, but they wanted to be at home with their kids. So it's only open during the day. Um, and I just feel like that's a trend that, that like this push against the idea that working in a restaurant has to come at the expense of quality of life. And also that idea that once something is successful, it must, why wouldn't you be open yeah. 24 hours right. a day to make the right. money? And it's, the staffing seems to be such an issue mm -hmm. in New York at mm -hmm. the moment. Yeah. I mean, that's part of it too. And also keeping the staff that you love and appreciate yeah. healthy. Right. And, and happy and taken yeah. care of. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll just say to everyone, because apparently for everyone's ears, crazy noise is easier <laughs> to block out if it's acknowledged. Oh, interesting. So this is just an yeah. interesting thing. Okay. So there is crazy construction <laughs> on the one hour that I have Hannah Goldfield, you know, with me, but. There you go. We can, they might break for lunch at some time soon. Um, if only yeah. we could know what they're eating. Exactly. I was joking <laughs> that it, you know, it's the rat czar <laughs> might be needed. The newly appointed woman that I guess is very important to restaurants too. Yeah. This, yeah. Have, has anyone been talking about like the rodent issue? 
Not that I have seen, but I'm sure, I'm sure they have. I mean, I've certainly like, you know, I, there was that big story in New York magazine about it. It seemed like the outdoor dining thing. And I know there's a restaurant in my neighborhood that I love and I know they had to rebuild their outdoor like platform. I think because of a rap problem. I won't, I won't name them because no, it's, don't. <laughs> but they, but yeah, it didn't, I never saw any rats, but I just had, I got the sense that, um, that that was why they were rebuilding. So what do you think of the outdoor structures? Oh God. Um, you know, I like being able to sit outside just on the most basic yeah. level. Um, at this point I have no, fears about being inside. I'm very lucky to not have any, you know, health issues that make me COVID scared or COVID shy. Um, so, I mean, I think it's nice. I think they're, I think it's nice to be able to sit outside. I think that a lot of them are really ugly. <laughs> um, but I kind of feel like they've just sort of been absorbed into the landscape of the city. A lot of things in New York are really ugly. There's scaffolding everywhere. We now have city bike docks everywhere. And I don't think that they're any more of an eyesore than any of those things. So I, I think I feel good about them. And I, and I do think that they, they're helpful to restaurants. I'm sure they're, yeah, I'm sure they're extra seats. Yeah. Extra seats. And I'm sure they're, I know that there are huge problems with them too, and that they're a pain in the butt. Um, in other ways, but I think that it's a pretty good thing. And I, I really admire the places that have made it kind of artful, like, um, two that come to mind are actually not far from where we are in Soho, Thai diner. Um, they actually haven't been there in a while, but they had this amazing structure that may or may not still be there that looked kind of like a train car, which I really appreciated. It was whether or not it was outside was kind of debatable because it was fully enclosed, but they did have these big windows you could open and it just looked really cool and there were ceiling fans. And then they also had a really nice kind of patio. Um, and then Via Corota, which I'm on record as, as um, declaring my favorite restaurant in New York, uh, they have done a really nice job too. They They just very thoughtfully, it's very thoughtfully arranged. They have it on the street and there's kind of plexiglass, I think on one side, but not on the sidewalk side. So it feels really airy, but also kind of protected. And it just feels like an extension of the dining room in a way that I admire. So I feel like the places that have done it well should, should be allowed to keep doing it. Yeah. I heard a story that you decided really early on as a young person mm. that you wanted to be a food writer. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me that story? Mm. And then also connect it to when did you first start reading, writing about food mm. and what was the impact that had on you? Yeah. So I think those two things kind of happened at the same time. Um, you know, it's all has necessarily a bit apocryphal because I don't remember all of the details, but I mean, one thing I remember is that in first grade or something, I wrote a haiku and I was, and my teacher really celebrated this haiku. And it's so funny. It's like, you're so impressionable at that age when your brain is not developed. And I remember thinking like the praise was so intoxicating and, and I, I printed it out and my grandmother carried it around in her handbag. And I was like, my parents had, had me read it at family functions and stuff. And so I just 
got this idea, like, oh, I'm a writer. That's what I'm good at. Right. Um, yeah, it's great. And it's, sometimes I'm like, wow, like what a weirdly determinative thing. What if that hadn't happened? Maybe I would have a different job, you know, like how it just feels so, it's so kind of random. Although I guess the haiku was just, you know, stunningly good. What um, was it about? Do you it remember? It was about, I, I remember one line of it, which was like, it was about, it was called my kite. And there was one line that was like, God and the wind move my kite or something, which is so funny. It's like, I, I would have thought it would be great <laughs> if it was about a hot dog or something. I know, that would have been better. Meal. No, it was not about food. Um, but then, yeah, and then I, I just remember being really encouraged in, in grade school in terms of my writing. Um, and then when I was 10 years old, um, I, I was always really interested in food and kind of obsessed with food. My, I went to a, a cooperative daycare where, uh, all of the parents were the employee, like there was a director, but then the parents took turns, you know, taking care of the children. And one of the jobs was that you, I cannot believe my parents did this cause I would, this would like break me, but they had to cook, you know, they would have a week where they had to make lunch for 30 kids every day. <laughs> I, I was exposed to a really wide variety of foods because I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, and a lot of the parents were grad students at Yale, and they were from all over the world. So I had this really like international menu. <laughs> um, and, you know, and there was a lot of, we had a lot of potlucks. And, and then my dad was a really uh, adventurous cook, and he had, you know, Indian cookbooks and Chinese cookbooks and went to all these specialty markets. And so I, I had this introduction to kind of foods of the world at a really young age and I loved eating and was sort of obsessed with it. And then when I was 10, the movie, My Best Friend's Wedding <laughs> came out and my mom took me to see it in the theater. And um, this is like a plot point that gets kind of abandoned after the first 10 minutes, but Julia Roberts, her character is a restaurant critic and there's a scene of her you know, at work. And I was just so taken with this idea. I just thought it seemed like the greatest thing. I didn't go to a lot of restaurants as a kid. My family, my dad did a lot of cooking and restaurants were not really a big part of my childhood. So when we went to them, they felt like incredibly special things. It was always a special occasion. And I just was just totally in love with the whole drama of it. Um, so to see that someone could make a job of eating at restaurants just like thrilled me beyond measure. And I remember that my dad was encouraging of my interest. And at the time, um, Ruth Rachel was the restaurant critic at the times and we had the times delivered. So my dad, I remember him saying, you know, read, you should read her reviews. And I remember him trying to get me to write my own reviews of like the one restaurant that a year I went to. And I was kind of like, no, oh, I don't want to do that. But I did start reading her reviews every week. She's written several volumes of memoir and the first one I think had already come out but I read it and just was blown away by it because it was about a little girl who loved food and who became a food writer um and so that was kind of like that was when I started to say that I wanted to be a restaurant critic when I grew up before that I wanted to be a Broadway star <laughs> uh and I abandoned that pretty quickly um so yeah, the story, that's the, that's the story of... Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then when you were a fact checker at the New Yorker, mm. six years is a long time mm -hmm. to do that. Yeah. And, you know, I'm making an assumption that, you know, everyone says you've got to leave a place mm -hmm. 
for them to really yes, understand that true. you've grown up yeah. and developed so much, yeah. especially when you're in your 20s. Um, you know, you you grow so exponentially in the six-year period there professionally. Um, but, you know, when you were a fact-checker, I'm sure that experience was invaluable. Mm. Um, were you, you know, eating out? doing reviews yourself mm -hmm. how were you flexing that muscle well so when I was a fact checker was when I started to write tables for two actually because um when I started at the New Yorker the column existed but it didn't it wasn't what it is now it was it was on it was in the goings on about town section but it was a little kind of capsule sort of sidebar yeah. on a page with other listings and it was not one person's job it was shared between six or seven staffers. So, you know, editorial assistants and some of some staff writers and I'm trying to think who else and, and editors. And so, uh, when I started pretty shortly after, maybe like a year after I started there as a fact checker, someone left the magazine who had held one of those slots and I had made it known that I was interested in food and, and I had done a little writing for the web, for the very nascent website. Um, and so someone asked me if I wanted to try writing a tables for two. And I was, of course I did. And so I wrote one and, and they decided Do that I Do you remember could... the first yes, restaurant? It was a restaurant that still exists called Mile End. It's changed ownership, but it's still there in Cobble Hill and kind of Montreal inspired Jewish deli. Um, I haven't been there in ages, uh, but I imagine it's still good. And I loved it. I, I love Montreal. I have spent a lot of time in Montreal. And so I knew I had eaten all of the food that they, they were. were trying to kind of reference and recreate. So it felt like the perfect thing for me. Um, it just, it felt like real kismet in a way. Um, and yeah, and then I was, I was on the roster and I wrote one, you know, every six weeks or so. And then I left um, because as you say, I needed to do some growing up and wanted to try other things. And that, and that's when I went to the times and then the magazine decided that they wanted to hire some designated food writers. Um, and, and so I came back. And now I feel in the New Yorker, yes, there are the certain pages that you always are drawn to, you know, every week, but the tables for two is definitely, I feel like it's everyone's, it's like a that. touch point. I hope um, so. I love get that. A sense. I mean, I love, I am, you know, I love reading magazines and I, I've always, yeah, I'm always, I think most people are drawn to the kind of little bite-sized, you know, rubric that you, whether it's the last page or some, you know, like an interview, like the Vanity Fair, um, yeah, the called? Proust, the Proust questionnaire. questionnaire. Yeah. Like that to me is just such a, yeah, an amazing touch point of a magazine. So I, I truly love to be the creator of one of those. It's great. Well, something you said in another podcast interview on the Taste podcast, mm. which I thought was really fun because people want more, mm -hmm. but you said that you think of your column um, as kind of capturing the pulse of New York or a feeling of the city through the lens of its restaurants. Mm. But what do you feel is the feeling of the moment or the flavors of the moment mm. or the vibe of New York City. Yeah. Um, what are you seeing out there? Well, 
the first thing that comes to mind is how hard it is to get into restaurants right now, which I think is a combination of things. I think that, I think part, I, I don't know, I, I part of me wants to do kind of an investigative dive into this because I don't know if you've tried to make a restaurant reservation recently, but it's really, really yes. hard, um, especially at places that are, you know, top of the list, um, but but kind of everywhere right now. And I, I do wonder what's going on in the kind of the back end, like are restaurants releasing fewer reservations because they're trying to protect themselves? I don't know. There's something weird going on. But, but I think at least part of it is that people want to eat out. Um, in a really kind of like crazed way. <laughs> I think that people missed it so much. I think it's such a, it's such an integral part of being a New Yorker and living in New York or visiting New York. And it just feels like it's back in a big way. And it feels like the center of the world again, which I think is nice and also a little harrowing. It's like, it's so competitive. I, I find myself getting, you know, a little stressed out by the, the frenzy, but I also think that that's it, that it's an important part of, of the identity of New York. I also wish there were restaurants that had no technology involved mm -hmm. anymore, mm -hmm. but I understand that the value of resi yeah. and being yeah. able to go on and getting those reminders and restaurants need to yeah. know, yeah. are you coming? Yeah. Um, you know, to release those seats, but right. I feel a lot of that magic is, is yeah. kind of gone. Yeah. But no, I think that's true. And I'm curious to, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting for me because I, I just don't, I mean, this is one of, one of the, the great struggles of my job personally is that I'm a, the parent of young kids and then a restaurant critic. And I don't have my, like my schedule is tight. You know, I can't, I, I, I like to have, you know, minute by minute plans because I don't, I just don't have the freedom to go to a restaurant and hope that I'll get in, you know, immediately I can't wait 90 minutes for a table, um, which sort of kills me because I do think that's exactly what you're saying. Like I, there's a little, we're missing a little spontaneity, um, or I am at least. Uh, but I, but I think more and more restaurants are taking reservations than, than they did in the kind of the previous era. I'm really curious to see what the scene is like at Superiority Burger, which just reopened which as far as I can tell does not take reservations. They never did. I mean, they, they were like a little tiny, literally like a slip of a, of a room. And now they're in what used to be the Odessa uh, diner, Odessa restaurant, was it called? Um, and so it's much, much bigger. And they're right now only open in the evenings. And I'm really curious to see if it's like, if there are lines down the block or or what the, what the vibe is like. Um, but that, it feels like, it will be in the spirit of what you're describing. Well, I want to now go back okay. to books yeah. because I know you're excited to talk about mm. books and you obviously read beyond food and your own yes. um, kind of a lane. But firstly, are there some of those quintessential books that include or involve food that, that you love? Mm. Um, yes. I mean... It's interesting. I think because I'm so immersed in food, reading becomes a little bit escapist for me. And so I don't, right now at least, I don't love reading about, I mean, I, I shouldn't say that I don't love it, but I'm, I'm drawn to other things. Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. Like, and I have like, I, I go down, I go into these, I do these kind of deep dives. I'm realizing, um, into other subjects. Um, but 
I have spent a lot of time reading <laughs> about food. As I, as I mentioned, um, Ruth Rachel's books were really kind of formative for me. And so those are, there are four or five of them, six, technically six. Although one is one of the memoirs is like really more of a cookbook. Um, and I go back to those and I just hold them, um, at the kind of top of my, of my list. Um, in some senses. And then, you know, I've started to, I, I've, I've been keeping on my bedside table a copy of um, Jonathan Gold's book, which is called Counterintelligence, which is just a collection of his columns for um, the LA Weekly. And I find him to be a great inspiration because he did what I'm doing in some, I mean, he did it very differently. And, um, but, but, you know, he, in terms of the weekly, thing and and finding ways to describe food and and finding ways to describe restaurants i think i find him especially inspiring um when i'm you know trying to cover the broadest swath of restaurants and not just the buzzy you know formal places but also the far-flung um you know family-run places in the in queens or staten island or whatever like he was just so good at making those places seem compelling and, and telling their stories. And so um, I find myself kind of trying to read a few of those, you know, every week or so just to keep the, keep the juices flowing. Um, I, I also love Jeffrey Steingarten, um, who was the food columnist for Vogue for many years. He's someone I think about when I think about food writing. He's extremely funny. Um, and uh, I love Laurie Coleman, who has had this. Her books have, have had a renaissance. They've been reprinted recently. Um, she wrote for Gourmet for many years. She was a novelist. Um, but she wrote these two wonderful books of essays about food called Home Cooking and More Home Cooking um, that have been become super appreciated in the last few years. Yeah. What are the, what are some of the books you've loved that are completely that palate cleanser for you? Yeah. Because you don't want to read about food. Yeah. Well, I've always I've always been a reader of fiction more than nonfiction, but in the last like maybe even ten years, definitely five years, I've I found myself drawn to nonfiction, um, and that's been really thrilling. I find it like I still love novels and I and I read them frequently, but I have just become so attached to the idea of learning f by reading a book, <laughs> which I think is funny because I, it's like, you know, learning to me, the idea of formal education has, I've always been sort of resistant to it. Like I didn't like college. I just always felt like this great sense of obligation and homework and, and it really kind of interfered with my love of learning, I think. And so to be an adult and to get to learn about the world, and obviously you can learn about the world through novels as well, but but to read these works of nonfiction and learn about history or you know things that are happening happening currently has been really thrilling to me. Um, I'm on a real kick of reading about extreme adventure and particularly. Arctic exploration. <laughs> I have to give you our book, Wanderlust. Oh, yes. Wait, I think, did we talk about this? I feel like we talked about I this. I might have talked about yeah. it briefly. Yes. I will bring it for okay. you when I, I see you next. I would love that. Oh my gosh, yeah, you would I'm, love I'm, it. I'm reading very slowly right now because 
my kids wake up at the crack of dawn and, you know, I'm out to dinner every night. Um, but I'm currently reading a book that's about to come out written by a friend of mine. Um, his name is Daryl Hartman and it's called the battle of ink and ice. Um, and it's, it's the story of these two explorers who were sort of dueling to reach the North Pole first. But it also tells the story of New York newspapers, the history of New York newspapers, because those two things, are turns out, are super intertwined. And I'm just loving it. It's like, it's so, it's so not like my beat. Is there a novel you can share that you've loved? Not even a recent one, but a, something that really imprinted on you. Um... Well, yes. I mean, it's funny. I was just thinking I should I should reread it and it feels like it feels sort of corny and cliché, but I really as a kid, it super imprinted on me was um A Tree Grows in Brooklyn and I've gone back. It's I it's like maybe the only book that I've reread more than once. And I don't know how many times I read it and I you know, it's like it's a book that's assigned in school in the US probably not in Australia, I'm guessing, but like everyone has to read it in elementary or middle, middle school, I think in the States, except in the States where they ban books probably. Um, but I read it in school and, um, and I just connected with it so deeply and I'm always sort of blown away by how much I love it when I reread it. And I was just thinking I'm due for a reread. It's been a really long time. Um, I'm trying to think what I've read more recently in terms of novels, um, I've really been on the on the nonfiction train. What was the last novel I read? I think I'm gonna totally. So I think part of why I like um, nonfiction kind of newly is that, yeah, I, I'm like, I'm really picky about fiction and I feel very like let down when I don't like a novel. And I tend not to love contemporary fiction because I'm looking for something that's gonna, as you say, imprint on me. And I feel like it's hard to read things in their time sometimes. And in, I mean, so, some books, you know, transcend that for sure. Um, but I think, I think it's hard to be a contemporary novelist and be trying to capture like the zeitgeist or, or capture what it's like to live right now. Because as a reader, I don't necessarily wanna read about that. I find myself drawn to other eras or other experiences other than my own. So I feel like people will be, you know, just so excited about some brand new novel and I'll read it and be like, oh God, really? Like this is what, like this isn't, I need something that feels like it's going to stand the test of time. And maybe those books will, but, I, but it's just, you know, I can't see the forest for the trees. I have a higher success rate with reading books of um, reportage. Um, another one that comes to mind that I loved so much is by my colleague Rachel Aviv. It's called Strangers to Ourselves. And that just blew me away. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's sort of a collection of reported stories in a way. Um, and together they kind of tell the history of, of what we call mental health, basically Ooh, in a wow. modern sense. Um, and it is just totally fascinating and beautifully written and like changed the way I see the world, which is something I think that non really great nonfiction can do, which is another reason why I'm drawn to it. Like I love to have 
my mind kind of exploded to have my perspective totally shifted. But I, I feel like I'm sounding like, <laughs> I'm like a fiction hater. I genuinely love novels and I've read them my entire life. And there was a time in my life when I never read nonfiction. I'm just in, I'm in my nonfiction era for whatever reason. That's good to <laughs> yeah. appreciate. Yeah. And there's such yeah. great recommendations, oh, good. which I love. To finish up, one cookbook. Mm. Um, it doesn't have to be if you could only have one cookbook, yeah. cookbook at all. Just one that you're either enjoying at the moment mm-hmm. or that you feel you you go back to most. Um, yes. So I do a lot of my recipe finding on the internet. Mm. Um, I love cookbooks, but but I am gearing up to explain that a series of cookbooks that I just find so satisfying right now are the, um, the genius cookbooks from food 52. Okay. And they're, they're books that you can hold in your hand. They're beautiful books, but they, they are sort of books of, they are books of the internet age in a way that I think is really well done. Cause that sounds contradictory, but basically this, um, editor there, um, came up with this column called Genius Recipes. Um, and uh, she like l- sort of defined this category of recipes that had some unusual technique um, that made them qualify as genius. It, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating way to learn about cooking because it gets kind of into the science of cooking by explaining to you how and why this the techniques one. work. Yeah. And then, and again, and you get this totally eclectic mix of recipes. I meant to say she didn't come up with the recipes. She, she chooses them from other people. So some of them are from classic cookbooks, like the Marcella has on tomato sauce is a genius recipe. Do you know this recipe? No. It's super, super simple and really amazing. It's you just take a can of tomatoes and you simmer it with an entire stick of butter and um, an onion cut in half, but kept whole. I mean, kept not chopped, just cut, just bisected. Um, and you simmer it for 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And it just creates this, you don't even put salt in, I mean, you can, but it creates this really rich, delicious, simple, fruity tomato sauce. So yeah, I'm really into that series. I, I find it to be a really interesting way of thinking about cooking. Oh, that's a great, another great tip. I want to go by that. Yeah. So I have an idea for you. If you haven't read the novel Lessons in Chemistry. I haven't. <laughs> it's really oh, fun. Good. And the chemistry, um, you know, connects to the chemistry in cooking. You'll whiz through that it. That sounds great. My last question, what lights you up? Just in general. Yeah. Um, oh, God. I mean, honestly eating. <laughs> I feel like I, I think about this a lot and, and books. I mean, these are, those are such, those are such sort of, you know, textbook answers, I think coming from me. Um, but I do feel like those are the two things that I feel, I mean, beyond like my family and, yeah, and yeah. my friends, um, I, I really eating makes me excited to wake up every day. Like I wake up and I have a whole, you know, canvas that that I'm going to fill with hopefully delicious meals um and I feel like that really does keep me going and that's what I love about food is that it makes life so interesting definitely for me um and then 
reading, I feel grateful to be a reader, to have been reading since childhood and to find such comfort and pleasure in reading. Um, I'm trying really hard to turn my children into readers. It just feels like this real gift to have through your life to be able to enjoy books. And, um, and I think you have to start young. So, um, yeah, those, those things light me up. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's beautiful. So much fun. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Olivia Allmeyer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andre Radovsky wrote the theme music. See you in two weeks.